Well, good to see you in the house of the Lord this evening. If you would take your Bible and turn to 1 Timothy once again. 1 Timothy and chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Looks like everybody's dry here tonight. But it sure isn't dry outside, is it? But we'll be glad for the water later on this summer, I'm sure. Anyway, so we've got to look on the bright side. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ, which is our hope, unto Timothy, mine own son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ, O Lord. As I besought thee still to, to abide still at Ephesus, when I went into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge them, some that they teach no other doctrine, neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies which minister questions rather than godly edifying, which in faith so do. Now the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned, from which some, having swerved, have turned aside unto vain jangling, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor whereof they affirm. But we know, notice it says they understand not what they say, but we know that law is good if a man use it lawfully, knowing this, the law is not made for a righteous man, but for lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly, for sinners, for unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, for men-stealers, for liars, for perjured persons, and if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. The title of the message tonight is simply Abiding in the Commands of God. Abiding in the Commands of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you thank you again for the opportunity and privilege we have to open your precious word. Thank you for the place that we can meet in the middle of the week to encourage one another and to provoke one another unto love and the good works, not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much more as we see the day approaching. Father, we pray as we meet together tonight, we would be encouraged and strengthened and challenged to, to abide in your commandments, to hold fast to the faith once delivered unto the saints, that we might continue to be a testimony and a witness for you in a, in a dark world. And we'll give you the thanks for it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, we live in a world, of course, that is departing from more and more, more and more churches are departing from biblical Christianity. I was made aware this week of a, there's a movie out called The Submergent Church. And it's about the emergent church. And uh, I watched a trailer of it. Um, you know, if you, if you want to watch, you have to pay to watch the movie. At least, at least that's the only thing I saw, but you know, and I don't like to pay to watch movies, so. Uh, but anyway, so I watched the trailer, which is probably 15, 20 minutes long, the trailer itself, the movies, I think, maybe an hour and a half or something. And they give clips and, of quotations and clips of these uh, emergent church preachers, uh, particularly one of them, of course, Rick Warren's one, then there's Rod, a guy by the name of Rod Bell and Brian McLaren and Tony Campolo and and, and others, uh, things they are saying. And this passage reminded me of that 
where it says, you know, having swerved, having swerved or turned aside under vain jangling. And, and if you listen to these guys, if you have some common sense, you would say they are confused. They are confused. That's really what happens when a person has access to the truth and turns away from it. That's what Romans 1 tells us. Uh, you know, they, they, they glorified not, they didn't glorify God, and, and of course, then they, then they, their foolish minds were darkened. But Paul tells Timothy here in us tonight that we are to abide in the commands of God. Uh, we're not to follow this, you know, it's a feeling-oriented, modern love-oriented, quote-unquote, form of Christianity is what the emergent church is, where it accepts everybody. There's no absolutes. That's one of the things. There's no absolutes. Uh, and I'll say a little bit more about that later. But, but the Bible tells us here very clearly that we are to abide or remain in the commands of God. We're not to forsake them. And one of those three things here, first, we're to rest in the commandments of God. If you notice in verse 1 and verse 2, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God, our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. You know, it's interesting, he says that by the commandment of, of God, our Savior, he calls the Savior God in this passage, which, you know, he does, the Bible does another passage too. But it, he was an apostle by the commandment of God. Uh, unto Timothy, my own son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace, from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. The word commandment is a, means, and it's an injunction, it's a mandate, it's, it's an, it's a, it's a, uh, injunction with authority. It's an authoritative injunction or a mandate that's given to us. And Paul was commanded by God or by Christ here, uh, as an apostle. You know, God had directed, you know, God is, is to, is to direct our lives into how, what, you know, if you want to call it a vocation, whatever vocation or what, how we, we conduct ourselves in this world, world is we are to follow the commands of Christ, whatever, whatever He has for us. In verse 3, again, He uses the word charge. I said, besought thee to abide still at Ephesus when I went into Macedonia. Thou mightest charge. And that's a, that's a, that means to command or to order. So there were evidently some there yet in, in, uh, wherever, in Ephesus here that were not yet settled in doctrine, weren't really resting in the commandments of God, and Timothy was put in, put in the place to charge them, or order them, or command them to abide or continue in the commands of God. And you, of course you see this in, in the, these are pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus. You know, Titus was an, also a pastor, as Timothy was, uh, who traveled with Paul for a time. And he writes Titus also in Titus 1, verse 9. He says, Holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. There are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers, especially they of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole houses, teaching things with the ought not for filthy lucre's sake. And so, so Paul has commanded Timothy, he's charged him, He's commanded him, just as God had commanded Paul, and this, this is commandments passed on to them, that they are to, to, uh, teach these things. You know, as we think about, you know, the God's command to us, the Great Commission is a command. 
And, and when you, you start examining this like the emergent church, you're going to find that they're forsaking all the commands of God. That's what they're doing. We're changing them. Uh, you know, the gospel is a command. Let me just say, gospel is a command? Yeah. Acts 17.30, Paul said to, the, to those at Athens, times this ignorance God winks at, but now hath commanded all men everywhere to repent. It's a command. You know, Second Thessalonians chapter one verse eight says that God's going to take vengeance of them that obey not the gospel, whereas they don't receive it, they don't take heed to it, they don't obey it. You know, it's a command. Except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. That's a command. And and so the gospel really is a command. But, you know, our culture is becoming more and more anti-command. Anti-command. They resent an authority telling them what they need to do or what their options are. Yeah, you, know, you do have an option. You don't have to obey God's command. But the option isn't very good. But God has determined what the options are. You don't get to determine that. You, you have the right to make choices, but your the, the fruits of the consequences of those choices are not yours. They are set. But see, the people today, they want to set their own agenda and determine the outcome. But it doesn't work that way. The Bible clearly says in Galatians 6, 7, and 8, Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall also reap. If you reap to the flesh, you're going to reap corruption. If you sow to the Spirit, you'll reap the Spirit, life everlasting. You enter into the straight gate, for why is the gate? Broad is the way that leadeth unto destruction. And may there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way that leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. God says if you, if, if you enter the right gate, you'll find eternal life, but you have to choose the right gate. I am the door by me. If any man enter in, he shall be saved and go in and out and find pasture. It's only by me. So, so this is, a, you know, even the gospel is a command, and for a person to reject the commands of God is to oppose oneself. In 2 Timothy 2, verse 25, Paul writing to Timothy a little later, he says, in meekness, you know, as he's talking about, okay, you're a servant of the Lord, Timothy, and you have to be gentle, and all men apt to teach, patient in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. If God peradventure will give them repentance to the knowledge of the truth. So, so anyone that's rejecting God is opposing themselves. In fact, you know, he spoke of this like this also in Acts chapter 18 when Paul was at Corinth. If you remember, in Acts chapter 18, verse 4, it says he reasoned in the synagogue. He always went to the synagogue first. Wherever Paul went, he went to the synagogue first. And so he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded the Jews and the, and the Greeks. And when Silas and Timotheus were come from Macedonia, Paul was pressed in the spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus was Christ. So up until this point, he didn't yet give the instruction that Jesus was Christ. That means that he was God with us. He was God in the flesh. He was your Messiah. But now uh, when, when Silas and T Timothy have come, so he felt it was time to say, okay, now you need to understand that this Jesus is your Christ. And then it says, and when they opposed themselves... And blasphemed. He shook his raiment and said unto them, Your blood be upon your own heads. 
I am clean. From henceforth I will go unto the Gentiles. And he departed thence and entered into a certain man's house named Justice, one that worshipped God, whose house joined hard to the synagogue. So they opposed themselves, and really what it means to oppose themselves is they rejected that truth that Jesus was the Christ. They would not receive it. Paul says they opposed themselves. And so, you know, these are, we, we've got to rest in the commandments of God. To reject the commandments of God, to be unwilling to submit to the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, is to oppose oneself. And so he commands us here to abide in, to rest in the commandments of God. Now I want you to notice, secondly, the relation uh, of the commandments. Uh, in verse uh, 5, he says, Now the end of the commandment is charity out of the pure heart, and of a good conscience and faith unfeigned. You know, we're, we're talking about the, the relation or the purpose of the commandments. We know the law, the law and the commandments can't save us. You know, Paul clearly told us that. So, so what is the purpose? Well, the purpose is to, to bring us to a place of new life, to bring us into new relationship. And this is what he said, the, the end of the commandment or the purpose, or the end, 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 end purpose of that is that we would have charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned. So this is the purpose of the commands of God. Charity, of course, speaks of love, of giving. Uh, uh, pure heart speaks of clean in motive. Clarity in mind, he says we're to have uh, uh, a good conscience, uh, clear, you know, free from guilt, consciousness of rectitude, of right conduct. It's also, the end of it is to, to, to bring consistency in conduct. Again, in verse... Uh, uh, five, the end of the verse there is of faith unfeigned. You know, to feign means to act or put on a put on an act or a show. Uh, so we're to have faith that's unfeigned. It's not an act. It's a real relationship by demonstrated by the life we live. And so he says that the end or the purpose is to bring us into new life in Christ, the life of the Spirit of God, where it's no longer we're bound to a law. But we, we live out of a, out of a giving heart. Uh, you know, the, this is the, one of the identity marks, identifying marks of a child of God is what? You shall know them by their love one for another. And, and so, you know, they have a, they have a love or loving or giving, uh, heart. They're, they're sincere or pure in heart. Uh, there's clarity of mind, free from the conscience. You know, Paul said, I have a conscience void of offense. Now, he couldn't say that before he got saved. Because he was really bothered. When, you know, when it says there in, in Acts chapter 9, it's hard for thee to kick against bricks. In other words, his conscience was bothering him. I imagine he could, he, you know, at times he could still see Stephen looking up into heaven and saying, I see Jesus standing at the right hand. And then Stephen saying, uh, how do you say, let not this sin be committed to their charge or something to that effect. Something like Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. I'm, I'm, I can imagine that, you know, prior to just getting saved, you know, that bothered him. He could still, that, 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 that on his conscience. But now, it's all under the blood of Christ. And he said he had a conscience void of offense. And, and he, and he had a life, a, a faith that was unfeigned, that was real, that was genuine. 
You know, to me, the, I, I sum this up, these, these things up by this. You know, a person who knows what they believe, why they believe it, and demonstrate or prove it, what they believe by the way they live. And again, we find examples of this in the Scriptures. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and verse 3 through 10, Paul speaks of the Thessalonians when he says, Remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father, knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God, for our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and much assurance, as you know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. And ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost, so that you were in samples. So there's, there's the, the consistent conduct. Examples uh, to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to God were to spread abroad, so we need not to speak anything. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for a son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus which delivered us from the wrath to come. So you remember this was the place, Thessalonica was the place, where, where they had to flee from. Paul and Timothy had to flee from there. And, and, uh, and, and, you know, and, they, and then they, they went, they fled from there and went to Berea, and the Bereans says it was more noble than those in Thessalonica. They searched the scriptures whether these things were so. But at Thessalonica, there was great affliction in the starting of this church, and yet those believers had a testimony that was an example to the cities around them. In other words, there was genuineness there. There was a, the love of God uh, demonstrated by their conduct. Well, uh, we see this also in Acts chapter 10, or Acts chapter 11, at the church at Antioch. Acts chapter 11, verse, verse uh, 19 to 30, where it says, Now they which were scattered abroad upon the persecution that rose about Stephen traveled as far as Phoenix and Cyprus and Antioch, preaching the word, none but unto the Jews only. Some of them were men of Cyprus and Cyrene, which when they come to Antioch spake unto the Grecians, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned unto the Lord. Then tithes these things came unto the ears of the church, which was at Jerusalem. They sent forth Barnabas, so that he should go as far as Antioch who when he came and had seen the grace of God was glad and exhorted them all that with purpose of heart they would cleave unto the Lord. He was a good man and full of the Holy Ghost and of faith and much people was added unto the Lord. Then departed Barnabas to Tarsus for to seek Saul. When he had found him, he brought him unto Antioch and it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people. And the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. Of course, that means Christ-like or little Christ. That's what the name really means. And then it says, notice in verse 27, And in those these days came a prophet from Jerusalem unto Antioch, and there stood up one of them named Agabus, and signified by the Spirit that there should be great dearth throughout all the world, which came to pass in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, every man according to his ability, determined to send relief unto the brethren which dwelt in Judea, which also they did, and sent it by the elders to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. So they put... They put into practice what they've been taught, they are to love and to give to those in need. They didn't, they didn't just love in word, they loved in deed and in truth. So it shows here that they, they, there was a, that they had purpose and it showed out of a pure heart, uh, charity out of a pure heart. Of course, Paul's own testimony, own life and testimony, uh, it speaks to the purpose of the commandments. 
uh, in verses 12 through 16 of First Timothy 1, he says, And I thank Jesus the Lord, Lord uh, who hath enabled me, for he kind of me faithful, putting me in his ministry, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of the Lord Jesus was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. And of course, he was considered himself the chief of sinners. So what brought Paul to this place? Well, if you go to Romans chapter 7, and verses 7 through 14, Paul talks about the law. He said, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. I had not known sin, but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law said, Thou shalt not covet. But sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence, uh, for without the law sin was dead. In other words, if there's no law, who's going to declare what sin is? It's every man to himself, you know. For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment which was ordained to life, I found to be unto death. For sin taking occasion by the commandment deceived me and by it slew me. Wherefore the law was holy and the commandment holy and just and good. Was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid, but sin, but it might appear sin working death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinful. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. So the law convinced Paul that he was a sinner. He was condemned before God, and he needed redemption. See, that's the relation of the commandments to the Christian life. It brings us into a new, it it points us into the need of a new relationship. It points us into the need of new life. Because it it slays us. It condemns us. It declares us dead. Separated from God. And the need of new life. Then notice the third thing here. There needs to be, Paul says, there needs to be a rejection of the philosophies of men. In verse 4, he says, Neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies, which minister questions, rather than God to edify, which is in faith, so do. So he says, you need to, you need to reject the philosophies of men. Fables. Fables are inventions, falsehoods. That's what they are. They're falsehoods. You know, Paul Peter said in 2 Peter 1.16, we've not followed cunningly devised fables. When we made known unto you the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. In other words, what we saw on the mount of transfiguration was not a fable. But he'd go on and say that he wasn't trusting in that experience either. Because he had something more sure than that. And that's the word of God. So he said, we haven't followed cunningly devised fables. You know, Paul uses this word quite a, quite a few times. Two other times in 1 Timothy, or once in 1 Timothy 4 and verse 7, and there he trans, is translated uh, uh, old wise fables, refused profane and old wise fables. Again, these are falsehoods, inventions of men. In uh, 2 Timothy 4, 4, he uses the word again, and and, and again, they shall turn away their ears from the truth, shall be turned unto fables. So rejecting truth, they accepted falsehoods. 
And, and he uses another description here. It's called the geneal- endless genealogies. Uh, endless genealogies. And genealogies is in the plural, and it's the plural, the plural of the orders of eons or eons of time according to the doctrine of Gnostics. Now, Gnostics believe, had this idea of knowledge and and everything is knowledge, and you can't, you know, you separate the, the body from the spirit. They weren't the same. You could have a spiritual, you could be spiritual in spirit and, and immoral in body. And that's, that's, that was the Gnostics' ideas. And, but anyway, they, they had, they're, 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 they're big on knowledge. Uh, and Ian speaks of a class of powers or beings conceived as emanating from a supreme, supreme being. Performing various functions and operations of the universe. So he says, that don't, don't give heed to these endless genealogies, these people, uh, conceiving themselves as something from, of supreme. Now, you think about our world today, and we have this group of people who think they're smarter than the rest of us. You know, some of the stuff that's being said. You know, we need to be re-educated. You know, we just don't have enough to really know what's going on. And and it says, and he goes on and says here that uh, and these these you know these things minister questions rather than godly edify. In other words, they raise more questions than they give answers. Let me give you some illustrations. Brian McLaren, who's a leading one in this emergent church movement, again, said this, quote, What if the Christian faith is supposed to exist in a variety of forms rather than just one imperial one? What if it is both more stable and more agile, more responsive to the Holy Spirit when it exists in these many forms? And what if, instead of arguing about which form is correct and legitimate, legitimate, we would honor, appreciate, and validate one another and see ourselves as servants of one grander mission, apostles of one greater message, seekers on one ultimate quest. Unquote. So, so, you know, the idea here is, what if the Christian faith exists in variety of forms, not just one? He goes on, another quote. Quote, ask me if, Chris, if Christianity, my version of it, yours, the Pope's, whoever's, is orthodox, meaning true, and here's my honest answer. A little, but not yet. Assuming by Christianity you mean the Christian understanding of the world and God, Christian opinions on soul, text, and culture, I'd have to say that we probably have a couple of things right. But a lot of things wrong. And even more spreads before us, unseen and unimagined. But at least our eyes are open. To be a Christian in generally orthodox way is not to claim to have the truth captured, stuffed, and mounted on a wall. Unquote. Does he sound confused? There's another one. Quote, the Bible is not considered an accurate, absolute, authoritative, or authoritarian source, 
but a book to be experienced. And one can experience, one experience can be as valid as any other. Experience, dialogue, feelings, and conversations are equated with scripture. In other words, they're equal with scripture. While certitude, authority, and doctrines are to be askewed. That means to be avoided. No doctrines are to be absolute and truth. Or doctrine must be considered only with personal experiences, traditions, historical leaders, etc. The Bible is not an answer book. Unquote. Well, I wouldn't going to go to him and find my solutions to life's problems. Because he don't know. Rod Bell, who's another one, he says, uh, he says a lot of things. But let me read you a few things. He says, quote, if the gospel isn't good news for everybody, then it isn't good news for anybody. And this is because the most powerful things happen when the church surrenders its desire to convert people and convince them to join. It is when the church gives away itself away in radical acts of service and compassion, expecting nothing in return, that the way of Jesus is most vividly put on display. To do this, the church must stop thinking about everybody primarily in categories of in or out, un or non, saved or not, believer or non-believer. Besides the fact that those terms are offensive to those who are un and non, they work against Jesus' teaching about how we are to treat each other. Jesus commanded us to love our neighbor, and our neighbor can't, can be anybody. We are all created in the image of God. We are all sacred, valuable creations of God. Everybody matters to treat different people differently based on who believes what is to fail to respect the image of God in everyone. As the book of James says, God shows no favoritism, so we don't either. Unquote. Another quotation, he says, quote, everybody is following somebody, somebody. Everybody has faith in something and somebody. We are all believers. Unquote. Um, he was in Atlanta, Georgia, sometime, some years ago. And uh, he doesn't pastor anymore. He pastored a church in uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan for a while, but he doesn't pastor anymore. He just goes around giving speeches and gives these little talks on YouTube. But anyway, he uh, was in this, in this, giving this speech at Atlanta, Georgia. This, you know, his speeches are kind of like comedy mixed in with, you know, whatever. And uh, he says, uh, uh, see here, where do I want to start with this? Oh, so he was asked a question. He says, somebody said, well, what do you say to someone whose child is likely to die after birth and, and they ha- they don't, they're, they're struggling with not being angry at God? And it says an uneasy silence descended on the small group. She been laughing at some of Bell's comic aids, but Bell didn't offer any preacher platitudes. He told the man he had some tough times ahead. Yeah. Uh, he spoke from personal experience. Bell was driven from the evangelical world in part because he was open about his doubts. He lost his church and some friends. Many of his fans are on the same journey. They don't want to abandon their faith, but they have questions the traditional church can no longer answer. And Bell walked closer to the man and told him he could, he could give him no easy answers. But he could tell him to avoid people who would try to comfort him by quoting scriptures like 
Romans 8.29, 8.28, we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. And by telling him his loss was somehow. So he told him not to, to avoid people that quote scripture like that, but then he told him to, that his loss was somehow part of God's mysterious will. And anyone who quotes from Romans and said it's all part of the plan, they can't talk with you, Dell said. He told the man to look for people who would, who would be present with him and offered him solidarity, community feeling, not solutions. He said he'd return to Atlanta in the years ahead and they would meet again and somehow things, somehow, things would be better for him. All the best to you, he said quietly as the man nodded in appreciation. Now, is there an answer to that? Why does God allow suffering in the world? Why is there suffering in the world? It's not because of God. It's because of man's sin. So to blame God is an error. He asked the question, are you one of, quote, are you one of those Christians who try prove who love trying to prove to atheists that God exists? Don't bother, he said. He told the audience he didn't like these YouTube videos where Christians destroy atheists in debates. Respect people's doubts. You can't lead them to where they don't want to go. Doubt, listen to this, doubt is part of the biblical narrative. He said, quoting Jesus, crying on the cross, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So what he's saying is that Jesus was doubting God. Jesus knew why he was there. He didn't have any doubts about why he was there. He was just lamenting that God and him were separated at that time. The Father and him were separated. That's all there was no doubts. Quote, it goes on. Quote, the Bible is as much about the absence of God than the presence of God. Quote. Did I say this guy was confused? Of course he talks about... <laughs> yeah, you know, I don't know if I've ever seen a guy take so much scripture out of context, you know. You could tell Judas, say Judas went out and hanged himself, and the Bible says go and do likewise. You know, put those two together, and you know that's about what he comes up with. Same thing. Um, he said, "Any church that so be- so betrays the example of Jesus, who treated women as equals, women in Jesus' time couldn't even testify as witnesses in court. Yet all the gospels have women as the first witnesses to Jesus' resurrection." And what he's saying, and I missed the part, of, first part of it. He said, he asked the question, "Do you belong to a church that says women cannot be priests or pastors?" And then he says, all the Gospels say that women were some of the first witnesses to Jesus' resurrection. So that evidently that means that they can be pastors and priests. Uh, of course, he doesn't believe in heaven or hell. Uh, he, David Cloud said, Bell's God is more akin to New Age pantheism than the God of the Bible. He describes God as a force, an energy, a being called out to us in many languages using a variety of methods and events. 
He said the, there is an energy in the world, a spark, an electricity that everything is plugged into. The Greeks called it Zoe. The mystics called it spirit. And Obi-Wan called it the force. And we call it God. You know, Daniel 11 talks about that. Talks about the Antichrist is going to worship the God of forces. Not the God of his fathers, the God of forces. Uh, he was on Oprah Winfrey. And uh, he said this, he don't miss the evangelical subculture in which he once revered. In other words, he pastored the church for a while. So he don't miss that, he says, perhaps because he never felt at home. He said, quote, even when I was a pastor in a local church, that seemed like a strange freak show. Unquote. And the interesting thing is about all this, these people also dislike conservatives, conservatism in politics. He hated Trump. This is what he said about Trump. Quote, not surprisingly, he is scathing about President Trump and white evangelicals, here we go, white evangelicals, and he's a white guy, who helped to elect him when he preached at Mars Hill, that was a church he was pastor. He preached against the Iraqi war. Some left the church, which prompted his realization that there is, quote, a religion way more sacred to people than anything involving God. Jesus, the Bible, and that is America. Even the gun, the gun is more sacred. It's the untouchable that can't be questioned for a lot of people. Trump's election, he says, revealed what gospel amounted to for many uh, us U.S. evangelicals. It was never about grace, compassion, solidarity, nonviolence of the Jesus path. It was about protecting a particular 21st century free market capitalist vision for the world, and that thing had been masquerading as Jesus for a long time, and it revealed its corrupt, stained soul. One of the gifts of this presidency has been that all that's now open, out in the open. It, it said morality, it said faith, it said trust in God, it used the words Jesus, but it wasn't serious, it was all a grand, giant charade, and now way more people see it than saw it before, and that's important, unquote. And yet he says he's more compelled by the Bible than ever. In a book he wrote, published last year, What is the Bible?, he sought to present the Bible as, quote, an ancient library of poems, letters, and stories with the potential to transform its readers. And of course, you know, speaking again of Trump, he said this is why he got, this is why this person got elected in many ways can be traced to a mis misreading of scriptures. The way of Jesus is a way of nonviolence. It's love of the other, so when a nation of immigrants starts putting on travel bans, you have officially lost the plot. Unquote. So we've ceased being Christians. If you're in favor of a wall at the border, you can't be a Christian. <laughs> you know, even heaven has a wall. And so does hell. You can't get out. You can only get in. Of course, you know what this is. This is critical race theory, basically. 
being taught in churches across America, being taught seminary right over here at Wake Forest. Southeastern Baptist is now teaching, has professors teaching critical race theory in it. And of course, centering our education system, our political system. There's another man. Uh, he was uh, Chris Say. So Baptist. He he's a third generation Baptist pastor, Southern Baptist. And he said this: "I love the Bible. Quote: I love the Bible, and I believe it's perfect in every way it needs to be. But I serve a living God, not a canon." Unquote. The word canon means to the how they put the bi- books of the Bible together. So it refers to all the books of the Bible. So he says, I serve a living God, not a canon. So what he's saying there, you know, is, you know we, we call them judicial activists, judges that legislate from the bench. This is the same idea, only with the scriptures. So he don't think, he doesn't think we have a complete revelation of God. He believes that the Bible is to be interpreted differently as times change and as cultures change, we need to reinterpret it to fit our culture. Because it's an ongoing revelation. There's only one problem with that. In Psalm 138, verse 2, Psalm 138, verse 2, you know, again, if you listen to these guys very long, you'd be very, very confused. Because there wouldn't be anything that you could nail down as right or wrong. Psalm 138, verse 2 says, I will worship toward the holy temple, and praise thy name for the loving kindness and for thy truth. For thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. He says he serves a living God. But he's not going to live in obedience or be servant to the Word of God, which is the living God. You can't, you can't separate the two. Jesus is the Word. He's the communication of God. Hebrews 4.12 makes it very clear. The Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and the joints of the matter, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight. Still talking about the Word of God, and it refers to the Word of God as his sight. But all things are open, are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. And of course, as I said, you know, this is, this is, this movement, this movement is not just in churches, it's affecting the education system. Um, you know, even math now. I saw an article this morning. It was titled, Virtual Signaling Your Way to Woke Sainthood. It was by Megan Kelly, slamming Bill Gates over his education agenda. And and he and, it, and the subtitle is, quote, even if you have hurt untold millions of children along the way, unquote. And so the Bill Gates Foundation is saying that, you know, he's coming up with this new education model. 
that provides teachers an opportunity to examine their actions, their beliefs, and their values around teaching mathematics. And, and I'm not read all this for sake of time, but part of the thing here says, quote, while primarily for math educators, this text advocates for the collection, collective approach to dismantling white supremacy. Now, what is, what is racial about math? I mean, I haven't figured that out yet. I guess I'm just not quite as smart as Bill Gates. What is racial about math? You know, I think that, you know, it's my belief that no matter if you're Chinese, Japanese, Korean, or African, or European, or Russian, or or uh, an American, or a Canadian, or somebody from Argentina, if you had two plus two, you're going to get four. But somehow, the teaching math is somehow teaching white supremacy. We see the white supremacy culture shows up in the mathematics classroom, even as we carry out our professional responsibilities outlined in the California standards for the teaching profession. See, the focus on getting the right answer, that's white supremacy. You know, it just sounds like this no child left behind thing where there's no such thing as wrong answers. I mean, everybody gets a participation trophy even if you do nothing. You know, not the heart of that, the heart of that is communism. Because, you know, the, the whole problem with communism, there's no incentive to work. It destroys the dignity of man, because everybody's going to get, you know, no, matter how, no matter how you hard you work, you're not going to get ahead of anyone else. You're going to get the same amount of pay. And so nobody does anything. Because there's no possibility of approving your own life, you're always going to stay on that same plane with everyone else. Except, of course, those who are in authority. Who have all the answers, they think. You know, this is, this is the, the word here, vain jangling, is interesting in First Timothy. It means empty talk Meaningless babble. And to me, this is what this describes. It's just meaningless babble. There's no solutions to anything. There's no moral absolutes. Even, even his math, re-education math program. You know, he talks about, uh, you know, when there's participation and certain students raise their hands. You can't raise your hands anymore. I guess you just blurted it out. Because you don't want to signal anybody out. Because, you know, when I was in school, only those who raised their hands were ones that thought knew that they thought they had the answer. And the ones that didn't have the answer didn't raise their hands. So what does that, what does that appear as? This one's smarter than that one over there. Hello? We're not all at the same level in everything. You know, we don't want to have helpers and helpees part of the article. I remember when I was in school, and I, I did fairly well in school. I got A's and B's without even trying. 
and and you know I had people jealous of me, and, but I would I would help some of the other students, trying. You know, I remember trying to help this one guy with his social studies. But you know, so but you see, you can't have helpers and helpies because that makes it look like we're on different levels. I don't know what they do now with public school. When I was in public school, we had. You know, we had a pretty big school, so there was, uh, I think, almost 250 students in a class. And there were eight different classes in each grade. There was A, B, C, and D. And then there was two groups of those. And the A students were those who were, uh, you know, they, they weren't, they were, they were, you know, down the lower end. And then the B students were, were, um, See, the B students, I think, were the lowest as far as mental capacity. The C students were next to the highest, and then there was the D students where the, the real bright kids were that took, you know, uh, uh, the, the extra classes and the more advanced classes and that kind of stuff. See, they weren't all equal. But if you'd have put those all together, you'd have, you'd have hindered those who had advanced learning capabilities and you would have you would have stifled those also who didn't have because they wouldn't have learned anything because they wouldn't have been able to understand. Either one you're gonna have to you're gonna you can't make it fit all of them at the same time. But this is what they're trying to do. This is a this is a called a promotion of pathways anti racist toolkit for education. Anyway, enough of that garbage. But no, we're to, we're, to, we're to continue, Paul says, what we need to uh, uh, take heed to the com- commands of God. Abide in the commands of God. There are, you know, we have a God of absolutes. We have a God of absolutes. Uh, we are not without knowledge. You notice here in verse 8 he says, but we know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully. Knowing this, the law is not made for righteous men, for the lawless disobedient. You know, we understand we can understand those things. We understand that the law is good, that it is given to us for it has a purpose. It is not changing. It is absolute. God does not change. God is not evolving with our culture or society. You know, we know our culture is, the art shows it. Your modern art looks like a little child took paint and splattered it. It speaks of chaos. And that's where we are in our society. But we are to rest in the commandments of God. To abide in those. Not to be deterred by the culture around us, even in the religious world, who are leaving the faith once delivered unto the saints. But we are to hold fast until our Lord comes for us. We can't make God fit into our culture. God doesn't change. If we want a relationship with God, we have to meet His commands. We have to repent and be born again uh, and find new life and new relationship in Him.